Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 7th, 2018, and my guest is economist and Bloomberg Opinion columnist Noah Smith. He blogs at No Opinion. That's his first name, Noah, followed by Pinion, which we will link to. This is his second Econ Talk appearance. He was here in December of 2015 talking about the reliability of economics as a science. Noah, welcome back to Econ Talk. Hey, Russ. Good to be back. Our topic for today is corporate governance and how corporations could be run differently from the way they're run now. Uh, what are people worried about right now when they look at at corporate governance and, and boards of directors and what corporations' responsibilities and accountabilities are? Well, there's a number of worries. Um, one of the main worries has been short-termism, the idea that when you have public companies, the uh, everyone's worried about the next quarterly result and no one's thinking five years ahead and um, or even one year ahead. And um, and so this could this could cause companies to underinvest. Uh, we have evidence that privately you know, held closely held companies invest more. Um, this could cause them to miss out on key market segments and just take a bunch of short term decisions or even, you know, assets strip. And so that's been a that's been a big concern. Um, obviously, there's also a big concern about wages. Even as corporate profits have risen, wages have been relatively stagnant in America. Um, you know, compensation has gone up very little, uh, especially compared to you know. Decades like the 1990s or uh, or the 1950s and 60s, obviously, and uh, and people are worried about that, and they're thinking, you know, the economy is growing and workers are taking a smaller slice of the pie, and how do we rectify that? Well, maybe we can use the government to tax and redistribute. That's the the you know typical solution, but maybe we can force corporations to have you know to change their structure and have a more equitable uh, or at least a more even distribution of the. Uh, of the value added from their activities. So those are the two big concerns. And I will link, will link to a couple of articles you've written on these topics recently. In one of them, you have a chart of the trend in, in compensation and the trend in corporate profits. And they diverge somewhat dramatically around, uh, around 2001, uh, which surprised me. I, you know, I hear a lot about our profits are rising lately. I, I'm surprised it's that length of time. Of course, the profits dipped with the recession of um, of 2008, 2007 to eight, and then bounced around a little bit, but they they've been recovered quite well since then. So right. this is a fairly long period of time of rising corporate profits, and I, it might be useful just to talk for a minute about uh, the stock market and corporate profits as a measure of say the economy's performance. I think a lot of people mistakenly think that that those two are uh, the same thing, uh, that, well, the economy's growing, cor- corporations should make more profit, or the economy's growing, and that's good for companies, and that's good for everybody. And um, when we talk about corporate profits, we're really talking about a particular segment of the American economy, which is publicly traded companies. Uh, it's not the whole economy. 
Uh, right. It's not the whole economy. Definitely. Um, it's just something that, you know, people think that they can influence. So, well, they want to play with it, but I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that a lot of people will argue that economic policy must be doing a good job because corporations are making more money or the stock market's rising. And I just don't, I don't think that's, um, a really good measure in particular if, uh, changes right. in tax, but like we've recently cut corporate tax rates. I expect corporations to, at least in the short run, maybe not for the long run because of competition, and we'll talk about that later, but short run potentially to make more profit. Um, uh, they, they can make more profit at the expense of customers. They can make more profit at the expense of smaller firms that might have trouble complying with certain types of regulations. I just don't – I think it's important to to emphasize that the health of the corporate sector is not – a one-on-one correlation with the economy as a whole. Uh, right, exactly. And I forget who it was, but there was a great line that said, uh, we don't want to tell people, let them eat the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, although, of course, a lot of Americans do own stock, which is pleasant. Uh, if the market's going up, it's always nice. But I, I think it's very uh, concentrated. I yeah. mean, stock ownership is so concentrated among the top 10% of Americans most middle class people in America have most of their wealth in their houses. Yeah, which is unfortunate uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but to the extent that you have uh, pensions, I don't know what proportion of Americans have pensions, uh, but they, of course, are often benefiting from the growth in the stock market as well, although it may not be measured right now at this point in time. Right. People do have pensions, people do have 401ks, and they are exposed to stocks that way. Um, and so, you have a little bit of stocks owned by a lot of people, but then a lot of stocks owned yep. by a little bit of people. No, it's this sure. very fat-tailed distribution. Yeah, for sure. But I, I just – I think it's really important to keep in mind that what I would call corporatism, that this somehow uh, – the idea of coddling corporations, uh, which will lead to higher profits and higher stock market values, I, it's not a good thing in particular. It's not a bad thing in and of itself, but it's not a goal. Uh, right, yeah. So, Agreed. so people are worried about, uh, in particular, they're particularly worried about compensation. The short-termism issue, I, I have never fully understood its source. Um, you want to talk about that for a minute? Why do we sure. think? Uh, I mean, why wouldn't long-term decisions or longer-term consequences be embodied in the price of the stock, so that? Everybody would care about the long-term and the short-term. They're discounted, of course, but they still should matter. Um, maybe, maybe not. We see um, excess volatility is this really well-established fact. Uh, people have been arguing about it for a while, but really the evidence is pretty overwhelming. What is you it? see excess volatility means that uh, you see stock prices bounce around a lot. There's a lot of volatility in stock prices, right? And then you see – you actually say, okay, well, let's look at the the actual dividends that these companies have been paying, or let's look at their earnings. Uh, forget about the dividends. Let's just look at the earnings and see if the earnings end up bouncing around this much. And you wait for 20 years and you look at it and they never do. So, you know, today people get really optimistic. Tomorrow they get really pessimistic and the stock, you know, uh, price just bounces around. And then you look and you see that earnings never did the same. So imagine if you have a a weather forecaster and the weather forecaster switches his forecast 
the weather forecaster is trying to forecast the, the forecast like two months away from now. And every day he switches his forecast. And one day he says, oh, my God, temperatures are going to be 100 degrees. And then the next day he says, oh, my God, it's going to be freezing. And he keeps switching back and forth. And then you get there and it's just, you know, a nice even 72 degrees <laughs> every day. And this guy is, is just, you know talking crazy talk every day like Alex Jones. And you'd fire that weather forecaster. And that's the analogy made by Robert Schiller, who really was the first to zero in on excess volatility and discover it, and who won the Nobel Prize for essentially that, for realizing that stock prices are an excessively volatile forecast of future earnings. What's the, do we have an explanation for that? <laughs> we have too many too explanations many. Yeah, for that. Too many, no doubt, yeah. So... Um, yeah, and so there's there's many explanations. The the short termism idea uh, is basically that you know yes, I may care about um, so so twenty years from now someone's going to be holding the stock, but that stock is going to have changed a million times between now and then. And in order for me to care about the long term value of the stock, I've got to assume that every single person along the way cares equally about the long-term value of that stock so that the so that the price back propagates so you know by backward induction you know you remember that right backward induction we can say okay well if the last person cares about the the value in 20 years then the second to last person has to too then the third to last person has to blah 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 all the way back down the chain to me but if that chain is broken even one time if there's even one idiot or or just or not even an idiot, someone who doesn't really care about the value, who just has to sell, is forced to sell for liquidity reasons or because, you know, their, uh, you know, daughter broke her leg skateboarding or something like that. Um, and then and then pays a price or charges a price that's not commensurate with the long term value of the stock. At some, if at some point the value price link is broken, the whole chain is broken. And then why do I care? And there's good reason to think that that chain gets broken relatively frequently, that a lot of people actually do care about the fundamental value, but there are enough noise traders, liquidity traders, or just irrational people who don't that, uh, you know, this, this whole idea of, well, I can project forward 20 years and then every single person who ever holds this stock is going to have to equally care about its long-term value or even five years or even one year, given how often stocks trade these days, um, there, you know, it's in other words, it's gonna uh, it's gonna get washed out in the in the uh, in the market, and you're gonna have that link that chain be broken. And so that's why there. In other words, there are many possible reasons for short termism. Yeah, I don't understand that, but um, in particular, I guess hmm. my first <laughs> it's okay. My my first thought is that is let me take a different kind of example. Uh, we hear that the CEO is focused on this quarter's earnings to you know the exclusion of of more important issues perhaps down the road. So I make a decision as the CEO to do something this quarter that leads to a horrific uh, lawsuit in in five years. And the, the standard argument is, well, the CEO probably won't be here in five years. The, the real question to me is if you knew in advance that that was coming, and some decisions, of course, you can't know, but others you can, why, why would the why would I need that complicated backward induction argument? Isn't there just a ar simple arbitrage condition that that the future value of the stock is going to be dramatically lower? That's going to affect the value today. Why do I need all these people holding the stock and all this complication? And isn't, isn't um, and, and doesn't that suggest that the short termism is a, is performing a different purpose? It's not that 
investors have short time horizons or that CEOs have short time horizons. It's perhaps it's just hard to figure out what's going on in the long term. And short term is, is the best we can do. The idea that somehow that these great decisions that are being foregone because people are focused on quarterly earnings strikes me as a very bizarre picture of the stock market, corporate governance, and so on. Um, I mean, I can't, I can't speak to that. I, uh, you know, a lot of people, to a lot of people, this seems extremely intuitive. The idea that, um, that people making decisions today should care chiefly about the value years from now would strike a lot of stock market participants as kind of absurd. They laugh at you. Um, and of course there's a big tug of war here between, uh, you know, traders and uh, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, long-term people, you find almost nobody who's not vested in some way. And so if you talk to private equity people, venture capital people, they will often complain about short-termism. And if you talk to um, you know, uh, executives who, who really have big plans, they'll often complain about short-termism. Look at Elon Musk fighting with short sellers on Twitter. Uh, so they'll, you know, they'll definitely complain about short termism. But then if you talk to, you know, traders, uh, they'll say, oh, no, of course, there's no short termism. Obviously, you know, long term value governs the value of the stock, blah, blah, blah. And so you it's hard to get a neutral opinion. But when you look at research, what you find a few things you find. Number one, once you take a company off the public markets and have it on the private markets, it, in, it reinvests more of its profits. And that's a that's a pretty robust statistical correlation. Um why is that happening? Why, you know, Modigliani Miller says, and, and various other neutrality results in economics say nothing like that should ever happen. It, it shouldn't matter if you're owned by a consortium of nine super rich people or if you're owned by 9,000 individual little stock investors and traders. It shouldn't make a, a bit of difference. Um, but yet it does. And why does it? We don't know. We also see that founder run companies invest more and also are more profitable in the long term. So that's probably why you see a lot of these great companies being helmed by the people who originally made them. So you see, you know, Apple is headed by Steve Jobs, then they kick him out, then he leaves, goes and does some other stuff, then he comes back, then he starts running the company again, and all of a sudden it gets revitalized and, you know, kicks major butt. Um, you see Bill Gates, Microsoft was really a titan under Bill Gates, and then it just goes into Bill Gates sort of you know, retires to go do his philanthropy stuff. And then you see Steve Ballmer and some other um, outside people or not non-founders, you know, running the the place. And then it sort of becomes this, this very staid blue chip company that does it, you know, that just does its thing and doesn't grow super fast and seeded a lot of the market to Google and whatever. So you see a lot of examples of this in real life uh, where founders invest a lot more, have these very dynamic, coherent, unified visions for their companies. Um, so we have several, we have pieces of, of information on several different fronts about founder-owned companies and just about closely held companies in general, showing that like they invest a lot. So that's that gives some fuel to the short-termism argument. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure the founder argument goes as as cleanly as you might like. It, it's interesting, relevant. Um, you know, founders have different emotional issues about their own companies. They Lots of stuff going on there. Um, they're interested in taking risk. It's it's certainly the case that a publicly traded company is going to behave differently than a founder-run company in all kinds of directions. I'm just not sure that short-termism is the main uh, thing there. Um, but 
let's move on to the second point you made, which I think is the more interesting point. It's the one that's I think most people would prefer that the markets not be so short termy, but they've also they're much more concerned about the wage issue. Right. Yeah. And so we're talking about short termism. It's good we got that out of the way because the real issue is about distribution. The real issue is about how much these companies are paying their people. And so a lot of people looking – well, let's actually – before we talk about a lot of people, looking abroad, America has one set of policies, legal structures, et cetera. But elsewhere, uh, countries have experimented uh, and, and tried different methods of corporate governance. And I want to talk about uh, co-determination, which is what – is that the right word? Is that the way? Yes, we, that is exactly which, the right word. Which is the, the thing you wrote a column about recently. And this idea is that, that workers would have a uh, – a say on the board, either as as holding seats on the board or having influence on who's on the board. And what's the argument there? What are some of the models outside the United States that we can learn from about the impact of this? Um, so, you know, um, Germany is the most famous model. And Germany is a relatively good model because it's a, it's a large-ish country. It's got about one quarter the size of our population, but that's still a lot larger than some very small countries like Sweden or Denmark. Um, and they have, uh, they have a co-determination system. Now, Germany has two main pillars of its co-determination system. One is workers' councils, uh, which, you know, is basically a council of workers that has input into things and, and handles some of the collective bargaining. But that's not what's on the table here in America. Um, the, the other part, the part that is here on the table in America is that, is that workers have representation on corporate boards. So basically, if you work for a company, you are considered a stakeholder and you get to vote for the board. Now, in America, that is not true. In America, you only get to vote for the board if you are a shareholder. So shareholders are considered the only official stakeholders who own the company. In Germany, basically, they have partial worker ownership for companies. And what's, what do we know about the German experience? Um, well, relatively little. Um, I mean, so, so we know that Germany has, uh, less inequality than we do. We know that Germany has less inequality than we do, but, um, there could be a number of reasons for that. Uh, you know, Germany is a smaller country with less regional inequality. Um, you know, Germany has, you know, a different education system and blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's there's relatively only, there's only about to, a million, maybe a million and a half factors that are different in Germany than the United States, besides that they have co-determination. So, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and it's hard to, you know, sort of look at these aggregates and say, okay, well, Germany's doing better. We better just copy everything they do. That's cargo cult thinking. Right. You know, cargo cults, right? I do, but why don't you explain it? So fine. So cargo them, cults right? were this, this relatively short-lived phenomenon. Um, in World War II, uh, you know, American military would land on all these islands and bring awesome stuff with them. And uh, then eventually after the war, they just left and, and stopped doing that. And um, some of the people there uh, thought, well, you know, how do we get this, this stuff back and how do we make these planes land again and bring us awesome stuff? And so they sort of made facsimiles of air traffic control equipment and, uh, you know, made a religious cult and, and made, you know, plain, fake planes out of straw. Uh, it was, you know, it wasn't that common of a thing. It happened on a couple of It maybe never islands. happened, but it's such a good example. It, it, it did happen somewhere, <laughs> but it's a, it's a, yeah, so I don't want to, you know, it's stereotype the poor, uh, the poor island people yeah. of the South Pacific. But it's a Richard uh, Feynman story, if I remember correctly. 
right? Uh, yeah. The physicist, he, he used yes. this as an example so of, of illogical. Uh, it's actually a fantastic example of, of misconstruing correlation for causation, uh, right? Exactly. When you had a lot of planes on your airport, you got a lot of goodies. So let's put a lot of fake planes and make it look like an airport or better. Let's build an airport. If we build it, they will come. But of course, it doesn't work that way. Okay. Right. And uh, yeah. And so that's, um, so we can't, it's hard to look at aggregates in Germany. And so um, there has been research on co-determination and looking at companies that are, you know, subject to co-determination and um, that research has been somewhat mixed actually. So you can, you can do a cross country regression, see that countries with co-determination in general, not just Germany do tend to have lower income inequality, but again, that's a pretty blunt piece of research. Uh, you can look at um, the, uh, you can just compare at the company level, companies that have labor representation on their boards. And again, that's looking at correlation, not causation. So that's important to, to realize, but um, you, uh, some some papers find that um, companies with labor representation on their boards do have lower stock market value, and that implies that um, workers are successfully extracting some of the value from shareholders and redirecting it to themselves, which is exactly what the proponents of co-determination in America would want. It's saying, well, if you give workers seats on the board, they're going to use it to press for higher wages and lower profits while keeping productivity similar. And, uh, and some people do actually find evidence of that, but then some other papers don't find that. And they say, well, actually there's just no relationship at all, no correlation. So it's a wash. So, uh, so it's, it's not clear. You don't seem to find anyone who thinks that, um, uh, that co-determination results in, in worse wages for workers. That's not a thing that anyone has found. But you could, uh, right? You could. You, that, that would be a possibility because it could be that workers are very worried about the long-term stability of the, com- of the company. They, they value their job security. And so they're willing to take lower wages for higher profits to make sure the company survives above all else, right? That's possible. It's yeah, that's right. It's theoretically possible. And so that's that's one of the things that makes this very hard to study because – uh, you can use profit as just a way of distributing the the value added to the shareholders and saying, here, rich people, take your stuff, go buy a yacht. Or you can use high profits as essentially a cushion. And you can say, well, you know, we have this very volatile manufacturing-based business, as you do in Germany. And this year we might sell a lot of cars, and then next year we might not sell any cars. And so we're going to make sure that when we do sell cars, we make a bunch of profit so that we have this cushion so that we don't go out of business in the years that we don't sell many cars. And so that could be a thing that's going on, too. And it could be that high profit margins could act as a sort of cushion for bad times for a volatile business to make sure that you maintain high labor uh, employment, that you maintain high employment levels, which Germany's also you know, been focusing on in the last couple of decades is, is raising employment levels. And... Um, and you're absolutely right about that. So another thing that co-determination can do, actually, uh, which isn't really being talked about in America very much, is that you can get better worker input. And, you know, so, so workers kind of know how things work on the ground. There's another Feynman story here. So Feynman is legendarily reputed to have solved the Challenger uh, disaster and figuring, you know, and to have figured out that it was the O-ring in the Challenger that blew. And 
if you read his memoirs, what he mainly just did was go talk to a bunch of engineers and say, hey, engineers, <laughs> what do you think is the weak link here? He said, oh, the O-ring. So he grabbed a piece of O-ring and he put it in a cup of cold punch and then he crumbled it in his hand and it was this very dramatic moment. And people thought, oh, Feynman, what a genius. Well, really, he just went and talked to the, the guys on the ground. And there's a chance that, um, that um, if you give workers more input into the running of the company, they will know what needs to be done to raise productivity because they're the people on the ground. They're the people close to where the, the, yeah, the sausage gets made. And, um, and so actually there, there have been a couple of papers showing that uh, the, you know, the companies with more workers on their board do have uh, you know, higher productivity over the long term. But, you know, that, again, that's correlation, not causation. So uh, you could basically that could be because more productive companies tend to put more workers on the board to the degree that they have voluntary control over it, because, you know, there is some variation between, you know, I mean, Germany says, well, you have to do this, but then some companies do it more. And then some companies in other countries do it more just on their own voluntarily. And so some people argue that voluntary putting of workers on the board is just a good thing. And this is a thing American companies aren't doing, but are legally already allowed to do on their own. And we shouldn't actually force them to. Instead, we should just sort of disseminate information about how that could be a good thing to do. And you suggested that since we don't, and this summary is very nice. And one of the things I like about, you know, and I've, I follow him on Twitter and uh, he's one of the, so even though we don't agree on a lot of things, uh, He's extremely honest, and he doesn't, as far as I can tell, it's, of course, hard to tell, but as far as I can tell, you are, uh, you're often saying things that don't necessarily go along with your priors. Uh, you're summarizing research like you just did. You don't try to whitewash it and sell it in a particular direction. You point out that it's mixed, which uh, is really good. You also point out um, that since we don't know everything here, we might play around with some tax incentives to encourage firms to try this. Right. Yeah. So we could just nudge, you know, I, I know that, uh, I know that you're not the biggest fan of the nudge concept, but, um, but maybe if it, we're talking about an organization rather than an individual, you might be more amenable. No, not but really, could, but go ahead. I'll give you a we shot. We could nudge companies and say, Hey, companies, we're going to try out this thing where try putting some workers on your board and we'll, uh, we'll throw you a little money if you do. And, um, and try seeing how that works. And then some companies will say, bah, we don't want workers on our board or, and then some companies will say, oh, well, you know, we'll try that. Maybe our workers do have some important input and they'll put the workers on the board and they'll say, actually, you know, we learned a lot from these workers and that was pretty good. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not just turning into, uh, you know, um, a big labor versus management shouting battle like a lot of union battles did in the mid 20th century. Instead, it's actually just, you know, workers who care about the company and now feel more vested and feel more of a stake in the, uh, in the operations and, um, and have useful insight to offer to management. And so, so I think that it should probably start there. Um, and then, you know, if that works, if the companies who do it succeed, um, then we could start thinking about, you know, scaling up that program in some way, or maybe it would just spread on its own and we wouldn't have to. So, you know. Yeah, I think it'd be an interesting cost-benefit analysis of whether you'd be better off spending that money as in giving it to the workers directly and just say, <laughs> the subsidies, uh, and just giving it to them and saying, here, have higher, have more money. Uh, right. Right, depends how much money it would take to encourage this uh, 
this uh, this trend. It's hard to know. Let's turn to a different issue, which a, which a lot of people have lately um, picked up uh, to my fascination and somewhat surprise and somewhat horror, which is this idea that monopoly power is spreading in the U.S. economy, that that's the explanation for these uh, higher profits, and that this also might explain the uh, wage stagnation. Of course, longtime listeners know that I'm skeptical about the existence of wage stagnation. So I'm taking that as, I think it's false. I think it's a misreading of the really? data. Yeah. If you want to talk about that, we can talk about that for a minute. But uh, Yeah, I think we should talk about that, actually, because right, sure. if, if that's not happening, right. then this discussion is <laughs> a little silly. Yeah, but 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 everyone assumes that besides me and about seven other people thinks it thinks that it is happening, and so they're trying to solve it, fix it, improve it. Uh, yeah, and uh, well, let's talk about it. Okay, we'll talk about that first, and then if we have time, right. we'll talk about. So, uh, what would you say is the evidence that that wages are stagnating? Um, <laughs> you look at the government data. Yeah, the government right. does a bunch of surveys about sure. this. And, and the surveys are collected in different ways, which I think is important because that minimizes the chance that you're looking at a methodological error. And you look at decades, you don't look at months. Um, you know, I've, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes against my better judgment showed the most recent data point and then, yeah. you know, that's, that's overinterpreted. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, because obviously... You know, that can that can easily get out of hand. But if you look at decades, you can look at the, um, you know, uh, real compensation. You, you can look at the employee compensation uh, measure. Yeah. Yeah. You can look at, um, you know, average hourly earnings. That's another measure. Not a good you can one, look at, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, the point is that none of these are perfect. Right. So, let me just comment no, on None this. of these are perfect. So you, so you look at a bunch. And right. so, so. The average hourly earnings does contain important, you know, information. It's not, you know, it's not a full picture of what's going on. You can also look at median, uh, median real weekly earnings for full-time employees is yep. another popular one. That's a good one. And so those are those are three measures that I always look at. You have the um, the uh, uh, Atlanta Fed's wage tracker. That's another one. Uh, that's a smooth, you know, moving average. Uh, so that's that's just yet another uh, measure, and then you have some more measures besides that, and they all show the same thing, which is that um, you know since the turn of the century we haven't seen a heck of a lot of action in wages, and ironically, well we have seen a little bit of growth in like you know 2014, 2015, um, and then uh, a a little bit again in 2017, although that that then look like it kind of reversed. We've seen a, a little bit of growth since then, but mostly since the turn of the century, we've seen very little action at all. Now that's, you know, we're in the 18th year since the turn of the century, or I guess we've had 17 years of data. And that's, that's a decently long time. I mean, I'm not, I'm not willing to call 17 years a blip. And we do see a lower rate of growth than we saw in the 90s. Um, you know, the 70s were, were uh, tough. Um, that was a tough time. We saw uh, a bit of, you know, some growth in the '80s, and then robust growth in the '90s, and then, of course, we saw robust growth in the in the, you know, '40s, '50s, '60s, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we haven't seen a heck of a lot of growth this century in any of these measures. There's really nothing that, and you know, and that that doesn't change whether you look at 
um, you know, inflation or, you know, if you use a different inflation measure, you can use PCE inflation instead of CPI inflation. And then, um, Makes you a get difference. a little better growth. Yeah, it, it makes, makes a little a bit of difference, but it doesn't change the fact of the slowdown. Oh, but that's two different questions. So, so there's here. The, and when you say stagnation, it doesn't word. mean that wages haven't gone up at all because they've gone up a little. Yeah, a lot of people um, think they haven't gone up at all. Um, right, and and I don't. I think the people who say that that wages have actually fallen since the seventies that's a a piece of like popular conventional wisdom that I disagree with. Okay. They have gone up pretty robustly since the seventies when you look at total compensation and you deflate it. Right. Correct. So okay. that talking, that's not a talking point of Noah Smith. <laughs> hey, hey, excellent. It's, it's other people's talking points. That, it's other people's talking okay. point and I don't buy it. I don't believe it. And I've written about how it's not true. Good for you. But, but I do believe that there has been a slowdown in wages since the, in wage growth since the turn of the century. And that slowdown is market and observable. Uh, I do believe that's true. I'm open to that, and I think it would be a productive uh, – the next time I'm back in the Bay Area, we should sit down and we should film <laughs> a video. I'm not kidding, actually. I'm serious. I think this is a really good idea. I'm into it. I like we it. We should film you and I looking at the data and talking about it and saying, yeah, well, but what about this or what about that? Because I think a lot of the times what people do is they they just pick their favorite series – I, I joked about average hourly earnings being bad data because if you look at average hourly earnings since uh, – real average hourly earnings since I think mid-70s, it's flat. And uh, part of that's because it's it's deflated with a particularly inaccurate – when it's often presented, a particularly inaccurate price deflator. Uh, it also is the whole economy. It all, there's a lot of reasons to, to worry about one particular data set. You're absolutely right that you need – you want to look at a few – when I've looked at a few, and, and the, the video idea I think is really interesting because it, it's like being in the kitchen. It's like instead of, it's like saying, oh, yeah, I ran these numbers, and look what I found. And I don't show you the 50 I ran that I didn't like or that didn't make my story look good. And if we could video our conversation where we pulled out the different charts and actually had to be accountable for what we pulled out, I think we'd both learn something, which would be really good. Um, and and the point I would make about the different series is, is – is it, you're absolutely right that you don't want to look at one. Uh, there's a lot of reasons. Average hourly earnings, for example, doesn't include non-monetary compensation. Uh, right. The um, ECI uh, series looks at all forms of compensation, but you could argue that some of those forms maybe you can't spend, so it's not so helpful. So right. That's the only so thing people the, care about. Here's the the limitation of ECI is that. If healthcare simply gets more expensive, but yet not doesn't improve in quality terms, yep. then the main and if the reason that healthcare gets more expensive is because we have an inefficient employer-based healthcare system that shovels yep. extra disaster. money that yep. is that that into this healthcare system, if, and if that's if both those things are true, then people don't really care that they're they're, they're getting the exact same off. health services, and someone's getting more dollars, and you know, and they don't see the input or the output, you know, people see their take-home wages and they see their take-home benefits and they see I'm getting the same amount of doctor visits and I'm getting the same amount of surgeries and I'm getting the same amount of medicine as before and yet it costs more. So my wages have gone up? Yeah, so the problem no. with that, but the problem with that point, I agree with that point, which is what I was alluding to, but the problem with that point is that that's not what we're using the data for. You're making the point that, well, but we're, people aren't going to actually be better off. And you're right, because <laughs> we have a lousy 
uh, healthcare system, the way it's structured and organized, then we wouldn't want to use the uh, flatness of, say, take-home pay or or monetary compensation to then say, well, we have to use that because people can't spend their health care insurance. They're just being stuck with the fact that their their uh, their healthcare benefits are chewing up a larger and larger portion of their compensation. Right. That's true, but it that wouldn't be an indictment of say the American corporate right. system, be an indictment Absolutely of the healthcare true. system. So I think right. you do want to look at ECI, not by itself. <laughs> oh yeah, but you other do. things. No question. But other no things. question. You do want to look at ECI. Now, the point you're making, which I also want to concede, is that I tend to focus on the nineteen 19- 70s to the present. I'm going four decades because you're, as you point out, you don't want to look at a blip or a year. I also right. agree, but I agree with you that since 2000, that's important. It's not zero. That's not a short time. And I'm willing to accept the possibility, this is where I want to sit down and we'll go over the data, that there's actually mm-hmm. been a slowdown, but it's not stagnant. And so this relentless argument that I hear that I'm just frustrated with, that all the gains have gone to the rich for the last 40 years, I think is quote, not true. Uh, and and so that's the only point I want to make there. I'm right. willing to concede but, the possibility, I've not looked at it lately, that the last 17 years have been different right? Uh, for whatever reason. And in the last 17 years, we've seen, you you looked at this explosion of profit. Um, a lot of that, uh, that, so that's been an interesting juxtaposition yep. over the last uh, 17 years is that we've seen corporations making a lot more profit, a lot of it from, you know, overseas operations. And uh, and then and then workers, you know, we've seen this wage slowdown at the same time as companies are making a lot of profits. Um, If you look at simply domestic value created, you actually see the same trend, but less market. So if you look at just the profits that are being made, you know, um, uh, domestically. And of course, there's a lot of accounting issues in that because companies do a lot of profit shifting, you know, for tax reasons. So it's not super reliable. But if you do look at that, you still see this this rise in the ratio of corporate profits to wages since 2000. And there looks to be a very clear inflection point. So as long as we're clear that it's not stagnation, that's just drama. Well, what is, wait, no, hold on. When I say stagnation, what I mean is a, a slow down the rate trend of break, yeah. a slow down the rate of growth. I do not mean zero growth. That's what stagnation that, means, just FYI. It's like when people say that budgets have been slashed and they mean, oh, the rate of growth. I, I don't think that's a, I think those are. Oh, no, no, you're right. Slashed is something, <laughs> is something else. Um, but if you're, so if your wages grow, you know, what, 7% over, you know, uh, two decades, right? And then previously, or 5% over two decades, something like that. And then previously, your wages had grown in many previous decades by, you know, 15, 20%. And now you look at this extremely slow rate of growth. I feel justified in that stagnation. Okay, we'll leave this at that. This okay, not, yeah. This is not, I just want people to know not, what I mean. <laughs> good, that's good. This is not English So talk. when I look at T-Con Wikipedia, <laughs> when I look at Wikipedia, it says, Economic stagnation is a prolonged period of slow economic growth. Well, that's so you know um, extending you that to wages. I, mean, I don't know. It's 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 a point that people shouldn't argue about because it's easier to just look at a graph and see what's going on. Yeah, I think it's important to keep our terms straight and to be okay. uh, clear. And okay. so we now are clear that you mean now a slowdown in the rate of growth. And a the dramatic is, slowdown in the rate of growth. Fair enough. Potentially a substantial slowdown. Yes. Potentially again, there could be other factors. It could be just to take one. 
It could be that the incredible innovation of the last 17 years in the tech sector has made the price indices we use less accurate, and that's part of the problem, right? Could be. Uh, uh, but let's put that to the side for now. I think we've made it clear what we think the state of the data are, are more or less. And let's turn to this question uh, that a lot of people are suggesting is that this slowdown in the rate of growth comes from increased market power on the, port, on the part of corporations. Uh, we had Matt Stoller on the program uh, recently making that case. Uh, what's your view of that claim? It's uncertain as to whether or not that is the, uh, the culprit. And it's a, it's a big question that is completely unresolved. So you've got people at the um, you know, Economic Policy Institute <coughs> basically saying, no, this can only be a tiny part of, the, of what's going on. You've got uh, Jason Furman, um, Obama, former uh, economic advisor and, uh, and current um, professor, I believe, at Harvard. Uh, I always forget where Furman is at. Anyway, he says, yes, it's only a small piece of, of the wage puzzle that's going on. And, um, and then other people say, oh, well, it's actually a big piece of what's going on. Um, you look at, uh, and, and sometimes they're not talking about wage stagnation so much as the, uh, the reduced labor share yep. of income. So you've got you know, David Otter's paper, and you've got um, a couple other papers uh, talking about that. Uh, you've got Simcha Barkai's paper. And so they say, oh, well, actually decreasing labor share comes a lot from, you know, concentration or at least from increasing rent extracted so from, strange, the, from the economy. So that's a strange argument. So let, let me let me try to make the argument or what I find. So let me try to make what I find troubling about the argument. The claim is and it's often combined with a focus on the tech sector. The tech sector has certain non-competitiveness aspects to it. So, for example, some people on the right complain that, say, Google doesn't uh, doesn't give a fair shake to conservative sources when you do a Google search. And, of course, one answer to that is, well, start your own Google. If you don't like Google, start your own competitor. And it's hard to start a competitor. We understand that. It's hard to start a competitor to Facebook. Having said that, they may disappear. There is a competitor to, to Google. It's called DuckDuckGo. There's others, I'm sure. Bing. I didn't even know that existed. I know, but Bing is out there. DuckDuckGo. And yeah. you know, I always like to point out, DuckDuckGo promises they won't use your, you know, share your information, and everybody thinks, oh, that's great. Of course, you have no idea if it's true. I just don't know, I don't know why the fact that they claim right. they don't share. Well, Google it is you... Google is probably sharing your information. Yeah, Google is. At least they're honest about it. Um, so. If you're worried about these things, if you're worried about the concentration in the tech sector, say, of social media or um, search opportunities and the ability of those to be manipulated, that's legitimate. I think that's a real interesting issue. It's a worry. Uh, it's not clear it has the same impact. I mean, I don't see any reason that it would have an impact on wages, and in particular – uh, what we're talking about is monopoly in product markets, not monopoly in the competition for the services of the people who work at these companies. In fact, I'm going to just pull – I never do this. No, I'm, I'm doing this for you. Okay. Just earlier today, in the last hour and a half, mm -hmm. you retweeted a graph. I, as I mentioned earlier, I follow Noah on, on mm. Twitter. You retweeted a graph that shows – that the share of national income captured by the San Francisco Bay Area is way up <laughs> while its proportion right. of employment is basically flat 
or a little bit down. And I'm not going right. to really pr- claim that that's proof that high-tech companies have been treating their workers very well. But I think they do treat their workers well. And I think it would be hard to argue that workers in these companies that have so much alleged monopoly power are somehow being exploited as employees. I just don't – what's the evidence for that, either theoretical or actual? Um, I mean – Oh, the evidence that – wait, so what's your question again? Can you restate that yeah, question? Yeah, because- so I understand that people are worried about dominance by a small number of firms in, say, the market for information, that social media has is very concentrated. Right now, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram have a very large share of the market. I understand that Google has a very large share of the search market. That has cultural and social implications that I don't think we fully dealt with, understand, and we're going to have to see how it works out. But I understand the argument. I understand the argument. I'm worried about it, but I understand the argument that says these are like public utilities. We should regulate them. We should demand that Google say or Facebook say, give equal representation to all political viewpoints. I don't really like the government doing that. I don't think that's a great thing, but we'll see. We'll see how this turns out. But having said that, I don't understand the argument then that this dominance in consumer markets like search or social media means that they're going to exploit their employees and that growth of monopoly power is keeping down wages in the United States. Just doesn't, I don't get it. Help me out. All right. So um, there's a number of issues to unpack here. One is that you talked about the tech industry, but the tech industry, despite having a spectacular market capitalization, is a relatively small slice of employment and uh, and revenue in the American economy. Excellent value point. added. Excellent point. You know, tech is everybody put has put all their money into Google and Facebook and Amazon and whoever, but it's actually like most of the American economy is still stuff like you know, agriculture or, uh, you know, like food processing or uh, construction or random services like education and healthcare. I mean, healthcare, yeah. real estate, business services, insulting, uh, not insulting, Re- consulting, sorry, insurance, <laughs> insurance plus consulting equals insulting. Yeah. Uh, retail, retail, like you could things. just list Big off things. all the sectors, Even you know, yeah, like, yeah. And so when, Proud you know, air travel, I don't know. And so when you look at all these sectors, like tech is this, this high profile, small sector of it. And so I don't like to focus too much on it. If you look at the employees, if you wanted to look at the tech sector and you wanted to look at who wasn't getting paid very much, you wouldn't look at Facebook engineers because they get paid great. They get paid big bucks, but there's only a very few of them. You'd want to look at Amazon warehouse workers. That's who you'd want to look at. Yep. There's a ton of them. And Michael Mandel has said, this is the future of retail employment. So instead of, you know, working in a store, you know, jockeying at cash register or whatever, you are, you know, you, the, the working class person of America is going to be working in the Amazon fulfillment center yep. instead. If, if we want to talk about tech employment and low wages and large companies, that's what we would talk about. But I don't. I don't want to focus on that because so much of the American economy is not that. Correct. Is not tech at all. And it's just we we again, we focus on the stock market so much and we focus on these tech companies because we've pumped a lot of money into their stocks. So anyway. So outside um, the tech sector and outside the the economy, where's where's the evidence that monopoly power is growing in, say, retailing or uh, retail employment or 
consulting services or haircutting or whatever. All right. I will go over the evidence. Um, so there is actually quite a lot of evidence uh, in terms of correlation, relatively thin evidence in terms of causation. And the re that doesn't mean that the evidence is wrong or that the phenomenon isn't happening or that we won't be able to prove the phenomenon is happening, but it just means that it's hard to know in this area. So uh, wh what we've seen are this. So number one, we've seen that in sec so, so that across the board in all sectors, uh, markets are becoming more concentrated. You're seeing a few large players where before you saw a lot of small players. And this is happening, you know, in sectors like, you know, in food processing, you know, Tyson processes like all the chicken. Monsanto provides all the seeds. And you see a few of these very dominant companies uh, in, in these, these sectors that we don't think much about. Um, weirdly, construction is not uh, super super uh, concentrated, but that's an exception. But then you see, you see a lot are really concentrated. And, um, but that's on and the product side, right? So that's if, on the product side. And so I, what you see, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. And what you see is that in those industries where the product side is more concentrated, you've seen labor's share of income also fall more than in industries where it's less concentrated. So in less concent, in industries that have become less concentrated, that have not become more concentrated, you see that labor's share of income tends to be higher than industries that have become more concentrated. So there's a correlation for you. That's piece of evidence number one. Piece of evidence number two, we see markups Do you think, should I be impressed? across the board. Should I be impressed with that first piece of evidence, Noah? Should you be impressed with yeah, it? Yeah, should it, should it um, like rock me? Should it rock, my, should it rock my priors? It should, it should you know, concern <laughs> you a little bit. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what your priors were, but, and I don't but, know how would, easily impressed you are. Would, would you... I, I'll let you keep going. Go ahead. I'm I'm almost never impressed by anything, so it's hard for me to say. Um, you know, I, I like to think of evidence as sort of, you know, more like building a case, more like, you know, less like thunderclap paper definitively proves X and more like, ah, we have 100 papers that all sort of point in the same direction. Good for you. Uh, you know, it's starting to look like this is going on. You're a good man. That's my approach. Yep, you're a good man. Keep going. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, um, so – we also see markups increasing. So we see that companies are, uh, no matter how you measure cost, and there's lots of different ways to measure how much cost companies are actually paying, no matter how much we measure cost, it looks like companies are, are across the board in a large variety of industries in the American economy are starting to charge higher markups above whatever their costs are. And that could be for several reasons. That could be because companies are just getting much more productive and, and selling stuff for the same price, but able to produce it for much uh, cheaper because they're inventing better production technologies. But that's kind of against the evidence that there's this economy-wide productivity slowdown that we see. Um, productivity slowdown means uh, if all these companies, if all these big companies are super efficient, we see you know, and there's a correlation of concentration markups. In industries where you have more concentration, we're seeing more markups. And why is that happening? If it's because all these super big companies are, are becoming much more efficient through mergers, then why do we see an economy-wide productivity slow down? doesn't make sense. Another possibility is that um, these products are just higher quality so that people are being able to – people are selling stuff that's better and so people are willing to pay more for it. 
And so these unobserved quality improvements that aren't captured in official rates of inflation, whatever, are actually driving these higher markups because actually you're just selling awesomer products. That's, a, that's actually a possibility uh, that, that we can't rule out. But, um, but another possibility with these higher markups is just that companies are squeezing their workers more. Big dominant companies are able to squeeze their workers more and able to charge consumers higher prices so you can or, or, or squeeze suppliers. So you can squeeze your suppliers, you can squeeze your workers, you can squeeze your customers, but that basically squeezing is getting done. And that's, that's uh, many of the explanations for, for higher markups revolve around the sort of squeezing. And that would explain the, the sort of correlation between concentration and markups. So that's piece of evidence number two. Piece of evidence number three is that people are starting to look locally because we have all this better data now. We are able to look at um, localities. We have the internet now. We can look at how many people are posting job uh, postings within like this town or within 10 miles of this point or within two miles of this point or within 100 feet of this, you know, whatever. I don't know. Um, so we're able to look locally. And local stuff matters a lot because – Nobody wants to have a two-hour commute each way across town to work, so it matters how many employers there are within, you know, a mile or two of your house. And so there have been several papers that showed lower wages and higher prices in locally concentrated markets. So when there's – so, for example, suppose you're like a welder and there's only a few companies in industries that employ welders within a few miles of your house – we see that your wages tend to be lower than welders, you know, all else equal, controlling, blah, blah, blah. Your wages tend to be lower than uh, welders in places where there's many people who employ welders within a few miles of your house. And again, that's correlation, not causation. Um, wouldn't you but think, it's a scary correlation. But wouldn't you think that as people move more into urban areas, which is a very long-term trend in the United States, somewhat maybe being reversed a little bit lately as housing prices get out of control – but there's still a lot of people moving into urban areas where there's lots more choices for people to find work. You'd think that would go the other way. There'd be a lot um, more opportunities to – I mean, just for example. If, well, if, if, you look at, if you look at some evidence by uh, Jed Kolko, uh, the, the urban um, private sector, like urbanist economist uh, who has spent a lot of time looking at these trends, uh, the move back into the cities – was a pretty small move and concentrated in one decade, the 2000s. Um, overall, the move to the suburbs has continued, and suburbs have high, much higher natural rate of population growth because people in cities but, don't have any kids. Yeah, but even the suburbs, there's often ways to get – like I, I live in suburban Maryland. It's easy to mm -hmm. go work in downtown D.C. Most of my friends do. It's 20, 20 miles away, and I, I'm here in the comfort of my own home, although I have to concede I've turned off the air conditioning to reduce the background hum. So it's not that comfortable on a 90-degree day, but the sacrifices <laughs> I make for econ talk are often not fully known. But, but well, my that's point, why you should move to San Francisco where the fog naturally cools everything in true. the summer. It's true. But my point is, is that I think if you think about the general job market that people are in, and in particular, if you think about the fact that Walmart, which is, for example, is not a small employer, a very large employer, employs – I think around a million people, something around a million people. Mm -hmm. uh, they've moved out of smaller towns or stayed in those smaller towns, but increasingly entered into metropolitan markets. And those metropolitan markets, they're in competition with lots and lots of other firms for those workers. So what I want to focus on is the squeezing thing because uh, – well, no, hold on. Let me yeah, let me explain more? how why that's not okay. So so 
if you have overall concentration increasing in every industry, then you have industry-specific concentrations probably increasing in most localities as well. Yeah. In other words, if you have only, uh, you know, three chicken processing uh, companies or two chicken processing companies, or mostly just Tyson, really, uh, where you used to have a thousand, then that stands to reason that in a lot of areas where you used to have a couple chicken processing companies or three chicken processing companies that someone who works in the chicken processing industry could go work at, now it's just one unless you're going to switch industries and spend yeah. all the time and effort to retrain yourself yeah. or whatever. I don't, that's the uh, problem. It's with Tyson. That it's only game in town. I don't only game argument. in town is Tyson. And then they're going to be able to, to pay you a lower wage because it's just so hard for you to switch. Uh, it doesn't work for me. Here's why. So why not? Well, because let's, let's go back uh, maybe 30 years ago when there were maybe in any one city, there were five or six or maybe even more, uh, equivalents of Walmart. I'm moving away from uh, chicken processing. I'll come back to it. Though. I'm Let's not, look I'm not at retail. Talking, okay. I'm not cheating. Yep. I'm not cheating. You. No, I'm going to come <laughs> okay. back to Tyson's for you, but uh, yep. you'll, you'll, I think it's easier to see. So it used to be there was Target, Walmart, uh, Kmart, and usually a lot of small local uh, stores that competed for general retail, uh, what we, you know, department store type uh, uh, customers. Those local ones died. They all died. They couldn't. They couldn't match the inventory control. Uh, probably other reasons, but the main reason that I see is that they couldn't match the inventory control that the larger ch- chains had, and that suddenly was a crushing, crushing uh, cost advantage for the larger firms. Within the larger firms, it got harder. So, no question. So you're right. Kmart might be. I think is Kmart gone? I, I don't. See them anymore. Target's still Kinda around. Done. Target's around. Sears is struggling. Macy's. All these firms, a slightly different market than than Walmart, Kmart, etc. Target, but those markets have gotten more concentrated. I actually would think that the prices have gotten lower, not higher. They don't. Walmart hasn't been able to exploit its fact the fact that it's driven out the the smaller local based discount firms that. When you tell people that, they suddenly say, "But they will when they get when they're the last one saying." Well, we'll see. They, that's not, I don't think that's what they actually do. But if let's but they make a lot of profit, they do because they're really good at driving down costs. Now, yeah, and what's and when and what they're are delivering costs? and they're delivering what percent of costs. All right, what are costs? So you have inventory management costs, you have warehousing costs, you have all that all those kind of costs. And you have labor, land costs. But what is your biggest cost labor. by far? That labor. is more than fifty percent of your cost. Labor. labor. Now, and when people say these companies are are gaining you know market share because they've become more efficient they've become more efficient because they've driven down cost that is almost always saying you're paying your workers less which is not contradicting the evidence that i was just telling you i don't think they're almost always i don't think that follows because labor cost is like 60 percent of cost only 60 that means you've shrunk the other 40 and i'm going to expect the case you can you can shrink the other costs without shrinking labor costs yep but it almost never happens when you have one cost factor that's sixty percent of costs. It is rare. It is nope. possible, disagree. but it is rare. I disagree. To see costs. Well, 
on what evidence? Do you have any evidence? Just the, any evidence at all? Because I have evidence showing that labor costs go down. Just intuition. I have evidence. I'll come back to that in a sec. Just I'm, intuition? I'm not done with that. No, I got some good intuition. Trust me. So here's why my, labor I, costs are not shrinking, but all the other costs, they're correct. managing to shrink all the costs correct. except labor. Yep. No, because then, no, I have ev- direct evidence against that and uh, direct we'll evidence against that. Let me finish my argument. And then and I've already given you, I've already told you the evidence against it in this podcast. So the idea that labor share has decreased in uh, industries that have become more concentrated indicates that it's the labor costs that are being driven down. That's the otter evidence. Uh, okay. That could be. I haven't seen. I don't remember that paper. So I'll have to. I'll have to. Wait, look the at concentrating that. on the fall of labor share, like the David Otter paper about the yeah. concentration versus labor share. I'm gonna look at it. Hang on. Okay. Sorry. Anyway, I just wanted to not go on before he made that point. Well, the I, point is that I, I, we've already presented evidence that they are holding down wages. <laughs> well, let me. I don't know, but let me finish my argument, which is the following. Okay. I'm an employee of Target, Kmart, local firm. And my firm goes out of business, okay? Now I'm stuck okay. working at, I have a smaller set of, of retailers to, who can employ me. Right. Uh, my argument, by the way, would be that uh, it's easy to apply technology to lower all the costs. And let me, let's think about that slowly. I can employ technology to reduce my inventory costs. It's obvious that all these firms have done that. I can also mm-hmm. employ technology to lower my labor cost. And the way I do that is I pick a different mix of workers. I, mm-hmm. I find a technology, to take an obvious example, if I'm, uh, I'm McDonald's and I can, uh, I can have my cashier push a button rather than actually work a cash register, I don't have to have as skilled an employee. I'm going to have lower wages as a result. But I'm not squeezing anybody. I'm taking a different kind of worker than I had before. But the point I was trying to make before you jumped down my throat with that empirical evidence. Sorry. It's okay. The point I was trying to make is that just because I – and this is my Tyson's point also. Just because I can't work at Kmart anymore – Kmart actually is out of business – doesn't mean that I'm stuck working at Walmart. Just because I'm – my Tyson's opportunities have gotten smaller, my chicken plucking – opportunities have gotten smaller is that most of the people who work in these industries we're talking about don't have very specialized skills in these areas. They have lots of employers they can work for. Their wages are low because their skills are low, not because they're being squeezed. That's my point. Well, here's, okay, fair enough. And so basically uh, the case where this, where local concentration really, really lowers wages a lot is where you can't move locations and you can't move industries. You're basically completely immobile. You're forced to keep doing the same job in the same place forever. What are and that's cement, the idealized case. That's feet? not real. What are, yeah. In reality, uh, honestly, you do have some ability to, to do something else. You can say, well, I can't work as a clerk in this retail store. I'll go work you know, um, on construction or, or I'll go work in a different store as a waiter or whatever. Um, and so, well, a clerk in a different store, no, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is switching between locations and switching between industries, not switching between employers. Because remember, we're talking about the case where there's fewer employers to switch to in the same industry, in the same location. Yeah. So if you if you can switch locations, if you can say, well, you know, there's not many stores here, so I'll just move to L.A. where there's a lot of stores. Okay, fine. Then you can you can avoid that. It's hard to move to L.A. It's expensive, blah, blah, blah. We could talk all day about the reasons why people don't all just uproot and move to L.A. 
Um, we talk about it all the time on this program. Right. And so, so, so that's one thing. And so in terms of retraining for different industries, moving to different industries, like, you know, jockeying a cash register at a retailer is a fundamentally different thing than, than, you know, stacking bricks for construction or waiting oh, tables. Oh, 100% agreed. But that's... It's not, it's not 100% different. You, yeah, you no, can no, do I'm it. No, no, I'm agreeing with you. Take, say, yes, I'm agreeing with you. So they retraining are. industry is, is not impossible, but there's barriers. It's... But, so it's just the question. There's frictions, you know. I agree with that, but it's not retraining industries. It's retraining. The, I'm asking about the possibility of you can change industries and still be a cashier. You're talking about right? It's 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 the it's the job that that you have that the skills of that job, which I think again are sometimes relatively straightforward and not very specialized. You can do that in lots of different industries. You do it in lots of different firms within an industry, but more than that, you can go outside the industry. You don't have to stay in the same industry. That and in metropolitan areas, there's lots of choices like that. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, but the point is, there are less choices maybe than before. Yeah, I don't think that there. Are, I agree that there could be fewer, but it doesn't mean there aren't enough to compete. I don't think it's not this dramatic four down to two to one. There's now there's well, think of, on the margin. Though. Two, I mean, just think on the margin. It doesn't work on the margin. It, if, if there's two thousand. That are much bigger instead of if there's two thousand that are much bigger instead of eight thousand small ones, there's still going to be the same demand for labor, and I'm not sure why that's going to therefore be a less competitive labor market. No, but I'm talking about you know not I don't, I don't know about two thousand. I mean, there's not two thousand employers. I live in San Francisco. I live in the middle of 2, a big city, there's, and there's not two thousand people that I could walk out and work for. Uh, no, there's, there's there's quite a few though. Actually, even for you, even Noah, with my with your amazing, limited, super with, you know, high skills, with your limited skills, with, <laughs> with my amazing, even with my amazing high versatile skills and my natural genius that allows me to learn anything in a week, I still don't think there's two thousand employers for okay, me. I'm calling but Bloomberg. The point is that, I'm calling Bloomberg, and I'm telling you that I'm telling him that you're overpaid. Obviously, because <laughs> you have very <laughs> you have limited choices. They, <laughs> don't tell him, Russ. <laughs> okay, I want to I want right. to read a quote from your paper. Uh, okay. From your essay that that I think is a nice thing to close on, uh, you quote Alan Kruger. Uh, you say the decline in union representation and the erosion of the real value of the minimum wage have contributed to the significant rise in inequality and polarization of incomes in the U.S. since the early 1980s. And then you write Noah, which I thought was very interesting. Kruger also notes that structural changes in the U.S. economy. The rise of non-compete agreements, temp staffing agencies, and outsourcing have aggravated the situation. Now, there's too many things in there to talk about. Okay. Uh, I don't think that the that the declining representation has anything to do since the 1980s has anything to do with the change in income and wages, or very little to do since. Maybe it, not. Maybe uh, though. But the point I want to focus on a very small thing, an aside that you wrote in here, which is temp staffing agencies. Oh yeah. When when people think about temp staffing agencies, uh, and I, I just think this is an incredible opportunity for a journalist or an economist to explore, and I think it's a, an incredibly important aspect of our economy that almost that I was going to say almost no one's noticed. Kruger's noticed it, but that's the level of notice. Oh, oh, by the way, there's also this temp staffing thing. So when when people think about temp staffing, I think they often think about uh, a, a secretary uh, has an illness and uh, is going to be out for or a trip and is out for three days. So we're going to call a temp agency to get a, a secretary and to answer the phone for three days. That's not what's 
driving the temp staffing phenomenon that I think Kruger is talking about or should be talking about, which is the fact that there are numerous thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, I don't know the numbers, I've never seen a study of it, of people who work for employers, uh, they show up for work, they work at this job, it's not temp, it's, it, they work there for a year or six months or two years, meaning it's te- if it's temp, it's, it's not what we usually think of as temp. And instead of being directly paid by the employer, they're paid by an agency. That agency takes an enormous share of the compensation, a shockingly large share of the compensation, which suggests that there is something inherently unhealthy right now about our labor market, about either the legal environment or the regulatory climate or the provision of HR services that has made it profitable for for companies to pay agencies an enormous premium so that they don't have to have those workers directly on their payroll. And I just think this is an incredibly important issue. I don't know what's driving it, and I wish people would pay attention to it. Yeah, it is weird. I, I agree with you that I do not know what's going on there. Okay, well, that's... I have uh, no idea. <laughs> but it's, it's worth looking into. I will look into it and see who's done research on this. Um, you know, I put that in there because it's sort of this casually known fact that, that temp agencies pay low. But why that's actually happening structurally is something I'd say we don't really know. Again, the, the interesting thing isn't the, the how much they pay the workers. It's how much their firms pay them for those workers, the gap between the cost to the employer and, and the, the payment to payment the, uh, the, the temps themselves. And yeah. that's just – it's a shocking uh, premium. And it is. It is. It's not because they're because they're nice. <laughs> there, there's to the temp agencies. The, the temp agencies are providing a service that is uh, a value that is. They're just they're middlemen that are not um, that I haven't seen anybody try to understand. I think it's really important. Yep, and yep. There's all kinds of of things in our um, in our economy that. Um, that we that that you know have these industrial organization effects that we don't understand, and that's why this um this very traditional way of thinking of employers as these these this huge number of essentially atomistic employers, which are essentially wage takers and forced to pay the going market wage and have no wage setting ability. I think we must be very skeptical of that mental model. And the idea that there's 2,000 employers that I could walk out and, and work for, very, very skeptical of that model, especially when we see things like the, the, um, the temp agency effect that you just talked about. There's so many strange industrial organizations in our country. There's so many strange industry organizations that end up with you know, huge premiums, huge wedges, huge markups. Weird anti-competitive stuff. The fact that real estate commissions, I'm just ran- randomly rambling at this point. Real estate commissions have been, you know, this fixed percent commission and finally starting to come down after so many decades. How did competition never uh, never cut that in this country? Um, there's so many things like that that you'll find in our economy. So many mysteries well, you know, that this, you know. You know I have an answer to that, of course. But 
But we're not going to talk about real estate. So the real estate, estate thing? Yeah, we'll talk about that another time. Oh, actually, I, I, I would be interested to know what you think I'm about that gonna, because I, I don't know about that. I'm not going to tell um, you. We'll talk about it another time. I want you to close, actually, by talking about something you mentioned in passing, which I think is interesting. And uh-huh. I say it because uh, uh, I think it was a field of mine in graduate school. I have to think about this carefully. Whether one of my fields was industrial organization. It might have been with public finance. I, I'm getting confused now. That was labor Labor and I.O., I think, yeah. Um, and I.O. in Chicago in 19, late 1970s, as you can imagine, was very different than modern I.O. But you make the observ- – I.O. being industrial organization, the study of market structure and these kind of competitive issues we've been talking about. You make the point that the clamor over these monopoly issues and payment issues and market structure issues are, is not coming particularly from the industrial organization part of the profession. Right. Yep. Um, and there, there, there's some, there's some uh, reason, obvious reasons for that. So IO people have spent, especially empirical IO people, have spent a lot of their time, you know, looking very micro, looking at the effects of specific mergers and specific industries. And, you know, not thinking so much about the overall picture, not thinking about the macro trends. Uh, so then you have what you've had recently is is people from actual macroeconomics or labor, public finance, et cetera, coming in and saying, OK, let's look at the overall picture because we see these weird macro trends. We see slow wage growth. Uh, we see, you know, falling labor share, et cetera, et cetera. Let's see if we can try to explain these. And then this is one of the things they looked at was industrial concentration, because everyone knows the story of, you know, monopoly, oligopoly. A market power kind of stuff. We we learn it in 101. Um, and so they looked at that at a macro level and the IO people are like, wait, hold on a second. That's not what we do. We just look at individual mergers. And so there's been this culture clash uh, between the macro public finance labor people and the IO people um, because they are just, it, it's it kind of incommensurate. They're, they're looking at different levels of analysis. And now I want to open up some dialogue between these people, and I think that that I'm one of the many people now pushing for more of a dialogue here because there are methodological issues with what the macro people are doing. They're finding, uh, you know, correlations that that could have several different causations. They're, um, you know, that people have raised some issues with some of their estimation strategies in some cases, and uh, but then there's also issues with what the uh, the I/O people are doing because you can't tell how you know, looking at how one merger affects things doesn't really tell you how a giant wave of mergers or a more permissive attitude toward mergers might affect the whole overall economy. So it's real; these macro trends are actually really important and can contain information that can help you understand the micro stuff as well. So I think that that both they're kind of you know grabbing two different uh, parts of the elephant. You know that story, of yep, course. Sure. And uh, I think they're grabbing two different parts of this this elephant and. Um, and that's a problem and they need to talk to each other more. And that's, that dialogue is now happening. And I think that, uh, you know, pieces by people like me can help facilitate that dialogue by collating and gathering a lot of the different research that is being done by macro people, by labor people, by finance people, et cetera, um, in one place. And then hopefully, you know, uh, getting some input from the IO people for future, uh, you know, rebuttals and discussions. My guest today has been Noah Smith. Noah, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. It's been a pleasure. 
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.